This afternoon, our sermon will focus on the doctrine of God's Word as the church confesses in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 7. Let's read Lord's Day 7. Question and answer 20. Question 20 asks, are all men then saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? And our answer is no. Only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. Question 21 asks us, what is true faith? And our response is, true faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. Question 22, what then must a Christian believe? The answer is, all that is promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. And finally, question 23, what are these articles? And here we have the articles of the Apostles' Creed as we recited them earlier in the worship service. May God bless the reading of his word, also the reading of the confession of the church and the proclamation of his word in this worship service. Following the sermon, we'll respond by singing from hymn 14, the stanzas 1, 9, and 10. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the early church, there were three things that you were required to learn as a new convert to Christ before you could be baptized. And they were the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and the Apostles' Creed. What would happen is new believers, new, new believers would be catechized. They were taught by using a format of questions and answers, the kind of format that we have in our Heidelberg Catechism. And these people were referred to as catechumens. And as a catechumen, you were welcome to participate in the worship services, but you were not granted the privileges that came with being a member of the church until you had completed the process of being catechized. Now, by the second century after Christ, the year of our Lord, worship services were divided into two parts. The first part of the service included the proclamation of the Word, reading and the preaching of the Word. And that part of the service was open to everyone. So everyone was more than welcome to come and hear the preaching of the good news. But when the Lord's Supper was celebrated or when baptism was administered, only members could, could participate. It was like a meeting going into closed session. So all non-members, everyone who wasn't baptized, was actually asked to leave while the sacraments were being celebrated. And that practice made it very clear that, as that old American Express ad says, membership has its privileges. And we can see that in our catechism, we find the same three elements finding a central place, the, the central elements of the Christian faith in our instruction as well. So we begin with an extended examination of the Apostles' Creed in the section on our deliverance, and then in the third part of the catechism, uh, on our gratitude, we move on to the law, the Ten Commandments, and to the subject of prayer. So those same three subjects, these are the basic building blocks of the Christian faith and the teaching of the Christian church. 
Now, our catechism is 500, some 500 years old. So by modern standards, we are following in an ancient tradition when we use it as a teaching tool. But when it was originally written, it was a return to a far more ancient practice that had largely fallen into disuse in the time of the Reformation. And Lord's Day 7 introduces us to the Apostles' Creed, the most basic tenets of the Christian faith. And our catechism introduces our study of the Apostles' Creed by speaking about the means of salvation. We have begun, we've heard over the past weeks, we've begun with the problem. The problem of sin and misery, our estrangement from God, the breakdown of the relationship between us and God. And then we've moved on to the solution and where that solution is to be found. So the salvation is only to be found in Jesus Christ. And now we're told, and we confess, that the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ is not universal. Not all people are saved in Christ, just as all perish in Adam. So there is a condition to salvation. We must be grafted into Christ and accept all His benefits in order to be saved. And the means of that grafting, of being being attached uh, to Christ, is the means of true faith. So what is true faith? It's an important question. And there's a simple answer to that. Faith means believing. But understanding faith, truly understanding what faith is, requires more than just a simplistic understanding because it's more complex than just saying you got to believe. Or even worse, you got to believe in something. And answer 21 provides us with a three-part answer to that question. The first two parts tell us what faith is, and the last sentence tells us where faith comes from. And so true faith has two parts. First of all, true faith is a sure knowledge. But I've mentioned before that in many university religious studies departments and many theological faculties, even in some large seminaries, the teachers, many of the teachers are unbelievers. They're, they're, They're people who do not have true faith but yet work with the Scriptures. One example that some of you may have heard of is a man named Bart Ehrman, who's published a number of books. He's a professor of religious studies, or at least he was a professor professor in religious studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He got his Master's in Divinity. He got his doctorate from Princeton Theological Seminary. He's an expert, a renowned expert in the New Testament, He's written or edited 29 books. He's written scholarly articles and published them in book reviews as well. He's well-read. He's written textbooks for students on the New Testament. And he also served as president of the southeastern uh, region of the Society of Biblical Literature. Bart Ehrman is his name. But despite all of this knowledge that he has accrued over the years, All the things that he can teach about Scripture, Bart Ehrman long ago abandoned the Christian faith. Now, I mention this story, the story of Bart Ehrman, and introduce him because it's a cautionary tale. And it's important 
for us to know stories like this because it serves as a warning for us. I mentioned Bart Ehrman not so that we can sit here and, and talk about what a bad guy Bart Ehrman is, but so that we'll be aware and reminded of the fact that mere intellectual knowledge of God's Word is never enough. Knowledge of Scripture, knowledge of the confessions of the church, memorizing your catechism, memorizing Bible verses is not the equivalent of true faith. The heart and the intellect, every aspect of our human nature is involved in our life of faith and must be involved in our life of faith. But merely learning your, your catechism, being able to pass a test about Scripture knowledge does not make you, does not make one a true believer. It is not knowledge about God's Word or even knowledge about God that saves us. True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in His Word. Now, I believe that this definition is not a definition that, that most Christians today would give if they were to be asked, what is true faith? Now, I haven't done any kind of scientific study on this, but if I could speculate just for a moment, I would venture a guess that many Christians, when asked, if they were to be asked, what is true faith, would probably give an answer that goes something like this. True faith is believing that Jesus Christ died for your sins. And as we'll see, that is a part of the answer to the question, what is true faith? But clearly, it is not the entire answer. An answer like that one, while it's a good start, it can lead to some serious problems in a person's life of faith. Now, Christ, we know, stands at the center of God's Word. Everything in Scripture points to Him. But you can't say that that is all that the Bible is about. God's Word begins at creation. It moves on very quickly to the fall into sin. And then it proceeds from there also very rapidly to God's working out of His redemptive plan in history. And God's Word includes commandments. It includes poetry. It includes history. It includes prophecy, wisdom literature. God's Word gives us directions how we are to live this life that God has given to us in service to Him. God's Word tells us about the past. It tells us how we are to live in the present. And it tells us what we are to expect from the future. So true faith, accepting as true all that God has revealed to us in His Word, includes accepting all of this as truth. And that means, brothers and sisters, that true faith must be characterized by humility. And that is humility, as we spoke about last week, humility before God's Word. A true faith says, I may not know everything that is contained in God's Word, but I trust that everything God's Word has to tell me is true. And when I learn something new from God's Word, I will submit myself to that. A true faith says, I may not understand everything in God's Word, but I will seek to understand it. A true faith means placing ourselves under God's Word, not over it as the judge. Now that's the problem 
with the unbelieving Bible scholars. Rather than submitting to God's Word, rather than accepting God's Word, humbling themselves in that way, they make themselves the final arbiters of what's acceptable or not, about what they're going to believe and what they're going to reject. In effect, what happens is they become judges of God's Word instead of allowing God's Word to judge them. The Word of God that well-known passage, Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the, the, to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. But there's also... Another problem when true faith is is described as or defined as simply believing that Jesus Christ died for your sins. Because the content of our faith is specific. It's not an expression that's so vague that that it can contain anything that you like. Because that turns faith into a feeling or an emotion. But the problem is when faith becomes a feeling or an emotion... It's like when we describe love in terms of romantic love only. What happens when that faith disappears? What happens when that emotion cools? What happens when that first love goes away? What remains? So true faith is a sure knowledge that accepts the truthfulness of God's Word. All of God's Word, not just the parts that we think we can accept as as postmodern people. But true faith is also very personal. It's a personal application of the truth of God's Word. So at the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. So faith needs to be your own. It needs to be personal. True faith is a matter of the heart. And because of this, true faith necessarily, by virtue of what it is, will change the way that you live. It changes your heart. And as Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so when our heart changes, that means that our life changes as well. True faith is known by its fruits. And good fruit can only come from a good root. And true faith centers on God's grace and it centers on Christ's merits. Your salvation is not based on works. It could never be based on works. It's not based in your own efforts. It's based in God's grace. It's based in the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so true faith means trusting in God's word. It means having confidence that God's word applies to me. And so now, knowing these two aspects of true faith as a sure knowledge and as a firm confidence that applies to me, the question remains, where does this faith come from? And once again, we're reminded that true faith does not come from within. It's not something that we work up within ourselves. It comes from outside of us. This faith, the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel. 
So it's the Holy Spirit who does this work of, of work action, of working faith, of strengthening faith. And he uses the means of the gospel to do that. So faith has content. That, that content is all that is promised us in the gospel. And again, we're pointed outside of ourselves. We're pointed to the Word of God and to the content of the Word of God. There is an authority, God speaking through His Word. And in order to be a true Christian, we must submit willingly to that authority. And answer 22 of our confession of the Catechism goes on to add that all that is promised us in the Gospel is taught to us in summary form in the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith in the Apostles' Creed. Now, the Apostles' Creed, I'll introduce the Apostles' Creed briefly as a reminder. It's one of the three creeds of the ancient church that we subscribe to. It's one of the ecumenical creeds. And strangely, it's weird how this works, but it's true. Like the other two creeds, the Apostles' Creed has the wrong name. The Apostles' Creed was not written by the Apostles. The Athanasian Creed was not written by Athanasius. And the Nicene Creed uh, didn't come from the Council of Nicaea. So all of the three creeds are uh, named uh, somewhat wrongly. So we have three accurate creeds with three inaccurate names. Now in the fourth century, it was believed that some of the apostles, or, or all of them, had gotten together to put together this creed. There are 12 articles in the Apostles' Creed, one article for each of the apostles. Each one wrote an article. So the claim was made that the apostles at each, uh, at each of the apostles had contributed one article and come out with the, the Apostles' Creed. But while the creed is an accurate reflection of the teaching of the apostles, the apostolic doctrine, and that's how we can interpret the name, the Apostles' Creed. There is no evidence that they were involved in writing it down. All of the evidence of history points to a much humbler origin for the Apostles' Creed, these 12 articles. Now, in the early church, as we've already heard, the, the Apostles' Creed was closely tied to the sacrament of baptism. And this creed developed from other creeds that were developed in connection with the, the administration of baptism in the church. Before a convert to Christ was baptized, he or she would, would have to answer a series of questions in front of the church. Questions like, do you believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth? And secondly, and do you believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord? And thirdly, do you believe in the Holy Spirit? And then once that new believer made his or her profession of faith, he or she would be welcomed into the inner circle and welcomed to participate in those activities that he had been excluded from previously. In Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, the Lord Jesus gave his disciples the Great Commission. The Great Commission says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So that's part of the, the that's, that's why catechizing is so important 
because of this command, this commission that the Lord Jesus gave. The process of catechizing new believers, making sure, making absolutely certain that they understand the basics of the Christian faith, even if they were illiterate, and having them make a public vow in front of the congregation, that profession of faith that they would have to make, it was one way in which the church worked to fulfill that calling to make disciples, to baptize in the name of the triune God, and to teach people everything, the people of God and newcomers to the church, everything that Jesus had commanded. Jesus says, go therefore into all the world, making disciples, not making converts, but making disciples. And discipleship is so vitally important within the church and in our evangelism. J.I. Packer, he said, he argued in one of his books, that today's church has largely given up on the practice of catechesis, of teaching catechism. Now we need to take our calling to catechize as seriously as the church did between the 2nd and 5th centuries especially. And he wrote this, and I'll quote what he had to say. He said, historically, the church's ministry of grounding new believers in the rudiments of Christianity has been known as catechesis. The growing of God's people in the gospel and its implications for doctrine, devotion, duty, and delight. Those who became Christians often moved into the faith from radically different worldviews. The church has rightly sought to ensure that these life revolutions were processed carefully, prayerfully, and intentionally with thorough understanding at each stage. So new believers would not come into the church and become converts lightly. They had to be changed inside and out, head and heart. Now between the 5th and the 16th centuries, the practice of catechesis, catechism instruction, fell by the wayside. But Packer emphasizes that the reformers led by Calvin and Luther sought with great resolve to reverse matters. And Luther restored the office of catechist, that was someone who specifically was dedicated to uh, catechizing the youth and new members. Uh, He reintroduced this office to the churches. Catechisms of greater depth were produced for Christian adults and leaders. And Calvin, in a letter that he wrote to the Lord Protector of England in 1548, said this. He said, Believe me, Monseigneur, The church of God will never be preserved without catechesis. So the Apostles' Creed, that basic content of our faith, must play an important role for us today as well. As we transfer, as we transmit and communicate the faith to the new generation and to new believers. This is central to our catechetical task. So the Apostles' Creed has its origin as this baptismal confession written in a question-and-answer form. The church in Rome had a creed much like the Apostles' Creed. Other churches also had similar creedal statements that they used, and they used them in their catechizing and their baptismal forms. Now over time, these similar uh, but, but different but similar creeds were standardized, and when the Christian faith became the religion of the Roman Empire... The variations could all be removed, and a single creed was adopted as the standard 
for belief. And the Apostles' Creed is Trinitarian in its format. It begins with God the Father, it proceeds to God the Son, and it ends with God the Holy Spirit. But it's not explicitly Trinitarian like like the Nicene Creed and like the Athanasian Creed are. The Nicene Creed refers to the Lord Jesus Christ as God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father through whom all things were made. So it's far more explicitly Trinitarian. And also in what it says about the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. And the Athanasian Creed was written specifically to lay out the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity and then the two natures of Christ, His divine nature and His human nature. But both of these creeds came into being later on, uh, many years after the Apostles' Creed. And that points us to the early, the very early origin of the Apostles' Creed. It came into being before those great Trinitarian controversies that the church condemned in the fourth century. Now, that doesn't mean that, as some people say, the doctrine of the Trinity was something that was developed later on in history. No. What happened was the rise of heretical teachings, false teachings in the church, uh, that Christ wasn't divine, that He wasn't truly human, or that the Holy Spirit is not God. All of these false teachings led to sharpening of and development of the doctrinal formula, the development of creeds. And these creeds were meant to, to distinguish between heresy false teaching which causes division, and orthodoxy, the true teaching of God's Word. So these creeds were used as part of the teaching of new believers, used as baptismal forms, and used as as a fence, we could say, around the orthodox doctrine of the Christian church to defend God's people against false teachings. And that's still the function and the role that it plays today And that's why we still teach on it, and that's why we still recite it or sing it on Sundays. This is, the content of the Apostles' Creed is what you have to believe in order to be, in order to honestly say that you're a Christian. Anything less than this could never be true Christianity. And so, over the next couple of months, the Lord willing... Our congregation is going to spend some time going through the 12 articles of the Apostles' Creed. Now, for many of you, I'm sure this is review. Almost all of you, I'm sure. But it's important stuff. This is the frame or or the skeleton or the foundation upon which the Christian faith is constructed. And we subscribe to it, one of our creeds, not because it's the equivalent of Scripture, but because, first and foremost, because it is faithful to Scripture, which is our ultimate foundation, and it points us back to Scripture. And we recite it together in the worship service as a public confession of our belief in the truth of God's Word. Each one of us recites these words, and as we recite these words, we are expressing our unity with our brothers and sisters, and not only here in this congregation, but our brothers and sisters in all the world and our brothers and sisters throughout history. And we also express the basis for that unity, which is the truth of God's Word. 
And so, as we did earlier, we confess as the church our faith when we recite the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith. And may God give us the grace so that we may live out a recital of these articles, so that we may live according to our confession, confess with our mouth, and believe with our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen.